Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. I'm uh, Matthew Tay, I'm Chief Executive here at the RSA. Thank you so much for, for, for braving uh, Storm Kira to be here uh, tonight. Uh, it's a particular effort, but it's uh, going to be absolutely worth your while. Uh, the subject this evening is about democracy in the digital public arena, and it's an event brought to you in partnership uh, between the RSA and the Centre for the Study of Democracy at the University of Westminster. Now, as many of you may know, the RSA is a big advocate of public deliberation, um, as well as speaking on platforms such as the Innovating Local Democracy Conference in Manchester last month. We're also working with a set of local authorities who are trying to embed deliberation into their decision-making. That's why we're also supporting RSA Fellows' work on deliberative democracy in schools. So in the context of our commitment to reforming, reviving, renewing a democracy, uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome Archon Fum. Uh, Archon is one of the world's leading authorities on deliberative democracy, and he's here with us today to talk about the role digital technologies play in modern democracies. He is a professor of citizenship and self-government at Harvard, and his research explores policies and practices that deepen the quality of democratic governance in particular, uh, sorry, in particular, public participation, deliberation, and transparency. His books include Full Disclosure, The Perils and Promise of Transparency, and Empowered Participation, Reinventing Urban Democracy. So uh, it's going to be a fascinating uh, talk and conversation we're going to have. Before we get into the conversation, we're going to hear uh, what Archon has to say. So please join me in welcoming our visiting expert on participatory democracy, Archon Fung. Thank you. Thank you very much. Is this on? Thank you very much, uh, Matthew, and uh, to the RSA and to the Center for the Study of Democracy at Westminster uh, University uh, for organizing this wonderful conversation. I'm delighted to be here with you tonight. Uh, just first, uh, by way of disclosure, my co-author is Joshua Cohen, who is a faculty member at Apple University, and I do some work with Apple University, which is obviously a large technology company that has some stakes in this conversation. Um, my motivation here is uh, very, very straightforward. Digital technologies have transformed the ways that we communicate with one another, and the effect of that communication on our democracy has uh, had some significant negative consequences that we need to reckon with. The last time that technology, technological changes affected such a large change in the ways that we communicate with one another as citizens was in the first part of the 20th century with the advent of television, film, or radio, um, film, and then later on television. And many people, by the end of World War II, thought that those technologies gave rise, helped abet the rise of fascist regimes, of Hitler, of Mussolini, of Hirohito. And our societies, the United States, Great Britain, many societies in Western Europe, successfully, I think, reckoned with the effect of those mass communication technologies and bent the arc of those communication technologies so that they would be relatively supportive of democracy rather than destructive to it. I believe that we face a similar moment right now. I do not know whether we, as individuals in this room or as societies, will once again rise to the challenge of bending the arc of uh, technologies, technologies operated by a very large concentrated platforms, much more concentrated, I should say, than the uh, concentrated broadcast industries of the mass media era. 
to begin, my remarks uh, this evening are about where we should go. What does, a, what does a successful democracy look like? And what kind of informational conditions does that democracy require? What, does, uh, what kind of public, pol uh, public sphere does a successful democracy require? Because I believe that unless we get some more clarity about where we're trying to go, we're not very likely to get there. Uh, these remarks have a little bit of a theoretical cast. Uh, I am going to be working with a conception of democracy, the kind of democracy that we all want to live in as a democratic society, as a democratic political regime, that is elections with lots of contest, and a deliberative democracy, meaning that uh, arguments do a lot of work, should do a lot of work in the ways that we govern one another. Now, there are two pillars in this kind of democracy. One pillar has received, rightly, and will continue to receive a lot of attention. That is the formal institutions of legislatures, of elections, of parliaments, of prime ministers and presidents. There's a second pillar, which is the informal public sphere, which consists of all of the ways in which we discuss politics and social problems with one another, whether it's in coffee houses, around uh, water coolers, in offices, in news media or in social media. These remarks will focus on the informal public sphere. The informal public sphere has always existed. Uh, the uh, anti-abolitionist movement and other social movements, including the civil rights movement, are examples of that public sphere, as is labor organization in the first part of the 20th century. In the early part of the 21st century, we see very many different kinds of loud social movements in the public sphere. Part of the uh, critical part of the infrastructure of the public sphere is the news and communication. In the 20th century, it was dominated by mass media. In the 21st century, social media is playing an increasing role. In these remarks, I want to answer three large questions. One is a question of ideals. What does a good democracy need from its public sphere? The second is a question of assessment. How democratic was mass media? And how democratic is our current digital public sphere? And then finally, the third is prescription. How can we make the digital public sphere better for democracy? So the first question, what does a good democracy need from a public sphere? The main idea here that I want to sketch out is the public sphere should afford all of us equal substantive communication, communicative freedom. That is, we should all be able to participate as listeners, but also as speakers of our own ideas in a democratic public sphere. This is an incredibly demanding ideal, and neither the 20th century nor the 21st century has yet realized it. Now, in this ideal, this is the philosophical part, so bear with me, there are uh, two big pieces, I want to say. One is a set of rights and opportunities that people have that are afforded to them by governments, like through freedom of association and freedom of speech, and by the design of mass media or social media. And the second is a set of norms uh, and responsibilities that governs how we ought to conduct ourselves in public and in the public sphere. And I want to argue that if we have both of these things, if both of these things are securely in place, then we will have a public sphere that is healthy for democracy. Okay. So the first part of this uh, initial uh, discussion about ideals. 
I want to say there are five rights and opportunities. The first is uh, a good public sphere in a democracy affords everyone the right to free expression. People don't shut you down, just the government or other people, other forces, other agencies, organizations don't shut you down just because of what your view is. The second is expression. Each one of us should have good chances to express ourselves, whether it's in Trafalgar Square or in the pages of the Financial Times or on Facebook or YouTube. Each of us should have good opportunities to express ourselves in public, to say what we, have, uh, say what we think and to be heard by other citizens. Uh, the third, and this is really important, is access. A successful democracy requires each of us to have access to reliable and instructive information. Need, need not always be true, even when lots of people are trying to get to the truth, we can make a lot of errors, we know this, right? Uh, fourth, diversity. In a good public sphere, when we're seeking out different views, there should be lots of them that we encounter. And then finally, and this, is, this one's a little bit odd, communicative power, that is, in a good public sphere, we should be able to say things together and uh, the force of our arguments projected in the public sphere should be important and political parties and leaders should listen to us. Okay, second part, norms and responsibilities. Norms and responsibilities are about how we ought to conduct ourselves once we're in the public sphere. It's not just about freedom, it's also about responsibility in this view. So first, each of us, when we're... Uh, posting things on Facebook or liking things or retweeting things, we should have some regard for the truth, a lot of regard for the truth. The second is we should be oriented toward the common good. We should be trying to figure out how our societies proceed together. Need not be that we all agree. Certainly we won't agree. There will be lots of things that we disagree upon, but we should be aiming toward the common good. And finally, civility. We should be uh, civil not in the sense that we should be polite to one another, that's not what I mean by civility here, but in the sense that we uh, treat people that we with whom we disagree with respect and enough respect in particular to try to understand what their reasons are and respect them enough to offer our reasons for what we believe. That's what civility means. Okay, so now uh, a couple stylized, highly stylized views of how mass media operated and how social media operates to uh, measure them up according to these ideals that I've just sketched, right? So the way to think about the argument is I've just sketched this picture of an ideal public sphere with a set of rights and opportunities and a set of norms and responsibilities and that's, that's kind of a yardstick. And the perfect public sphere hits all of those things perfectly but we're not there. And so the part of the, the, this next segment of the remarks is meant to uh, assess a little bit how well the 20th century public sphere, mass media public sphere did, and how well so far the social media digital public sphere is doing. Okay, the 20th century mass media public sphere was characterized uh, kind of, I don't know, technolo technologically as a one-to-many broadcast system, right? There's one network, a few, a handful of people on the BBC or on the radio or writing articles in the Financial Times or the London Times and you're reading them and millions and people, millions and millions of people are reading them, but maybe only dozens or hundreds of people are actually generating the content. That is uh, kind of a character, a thumbnail characterization of one critical feature of the mass media public sphere. 
in the United States in broadcast. That was characterized by three broadcast networks. And on the uh, scale of diversity, wasn't that diverse? Uh, people for a long time looked the same. They were educated in largely the same ways. And as a consequence, the views that they articulated and their perspectives on the news fell, I believe, within a very, very narrow aperture. Now, for those of you uh, who came of age after the film camera, an aperture is a piece of a camera <laughs> that limits the light that goes through, right? And so I want to describe the 20th century mass media public sphere as a relatively low aperture world in the sense that not that many views came through. And so here's a little bit of a report card. Uh, in the United States, uh, all report cards are A, B, and C. A means you do very well, and C means uh, you don't do very well. I th don't think it's, I think you get the point here. Um, anyhow, uh, on our estimation, the 20th century mass media gets a C on two uh, important uh, of these criteria for a good public sphere. One, opportunities for expression were very constrained. If you are Peter Jennings or if you're an anchor on, ABC, or on the BBC, you have ample opportunities to express your views. But if you're writing a letter to the editor or trying to uh, lead the civil rights movement and get your word in edgewise, your opportunities for expression are very, very constrained because there are gatekeepers. This is what is meant by gatekeeping in the mass media era, right? And similarly, opportunities for communicative action I believe we're very, quite constrained in the mass media era. And so uh, civil rights activists, anti-war activists during the Vietnam era were struggling for attention and found it very, very difficult to organize. And uh, I think one, um, one positive thing, we'll get to this in a little bit, is that the social media era makes it easier for social movements to articulate their views and combine together. I believe that uh, the movement for black lives in the United States or, or Sunrise or, uh, or the Me Too movement would have had a much more difficult time getting going uh, in the mass media era. That's what's meant by communicative action. Now, uh, people can make their own assessments, but I assess access to reliable information in the mass media era as a B, right? And so it does pretty well because there's a large profession of uh, highly trained journalists who are trying to get it right and provide people access to information. Uh, and so that's why it does pretty well. But it's limited because uh, journalism often is, uh, shares a fairly narrow perspective. And so uh, the anti-war movement in Vietnam got very little coverage, uh, kind of notoriously in the United States in the run-up to the invasion of uh, Iraq in the Second, Iraq, uh, in the Second Gulf War, uh, very few anti-war voices made it into the mainstream media. Almost all of the voices that were covered were pro-war. Most of the anti-war voices that were covered, it turns out, were Saddam Hussein, who was saying, I don't have any weapons of mass destruction, right? Um, okay. And then uh, I think the uh, mass media era gets an A on truth-seeking, common good orientation, and civility because the speakers were professional journalists who were socialized and acculturated to these norms, and they, for the most part, adhered to them, which is a very good thing. Okay, the 21st century digital public sphere. 
is characterized by many-to-many -many communication. That's what the internet is. And taking stock of these platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Google, many others, now it's a very, very wide aperture. Lots and lots of ideas get into the public domain. And what does that mean? Uh, I think it gets a C on these norms and responsibilities because many of the participants on, um, in the social media public sphere, that's us, I'm talking about all of us now, don't behave very well. So uh, for those of you who were uh, thinking about the internet in the 90s, if you were like me, we were very hopeful. We thought that the internet would be great for democracy because gatekeeping would be lowered, everyone would be able to blog and put their views out there. What we didn't realize is that we're awful people. And <laughs> that uh, that's, uh, is coming out now, or at least some of our behavior on the internet is pretty, pretty awful. And so that's why uh, we get a C on truth-seeking, common good orientation, and civility. Now, access to information is a B, but for different reasons. Now, if you really bother to look, you can find out high-quality information on just about any topic you care to research on the internet much, much more easily than you could in the mass media era. The trouble is there's a huge amount of noise out there, as we know. So the effort to separate the signal from the noise can, be, uh, can require Herculean effort. So that's why it's a B. Um, the social media world uh, and the, is uh, an A, I think, on three dimensions. Expressive opportunities and communicative action I already talked about, but also diversity. There are far more views out there that are available for people to consider than in the mass media era. Okay, so uh, quickly, how can we begin to make the digital public sphere better for democracy? I think we should have three orientations. We need to be looking forward, not backward, right? And that's why I took the time to compare the 20th century mass media sphere to the 21st, because in this era when social media creates so much political anxiety, it's easy to romanticize what 20th century media was. And so this is meant in part to be a little bit of an antidote to that tendency toward romanticization. And so we need to be forward-looking. Uh, one feature of making it better is that the burdens on citizens are much, much greater than they were in the 20th century. We are, because we're active speakers, if the public sphere is going to be good, we need to be better. And that's very difficult. And finally, I believe that it's an all-hands-on-deck orientation, that really creating a better public sphere is not just that the government can't do it alone. The companies, the platform operators need to exert a huge amount of much more deliberate effort and care than they are now, and citizens need to be better. Um, just a few uh, cases of how we come down on some problems that people talk about in social media. Toxic behavior... Uh, it's very, very easy. Government platform, well, first of all, citizens should stop engaging in toxic behavior. Uh, but for those that don't, uh, in our argument, Josh Cohen and myself, we have no trouble with platforms and government li limiting toxic behavior uh, because it has so little democratic value. Um, doxing, do people know these? Doxing is putting up private information of people that you don't like on the internet so that other people can harass them. Swatting is another form of toxic behavior. That's uh, calling in an address as, uh, as a terrorist address, and maybe a SWAT team goes there. Um, and this has happened a few times, and people have died because of it. This is inexcusable. Now, fake news. 
A huge amount of reform attention is devoted to controlling fake news right now and thinking about how to reduce the amount of fake news. Um, Josh Cohen and I are a little bit circumspect about these efforts because uh, we have a lot of affinity for the First Amendment and part of the history of efforts to control, control speech is that um, once you open the door, it often becomes the case that whether it's private actors or governmental actors, it's the speech of the less powerful that will be controlled. And so we are kind of reluctant to open the door to the possibility of overregulation because it limits, has the potential to limit expression and diversity and um, communicative power. Uh, a far better answer would be to create the resources for go more good news in all sorts of different ways. This is a, a quote from Louis Brandeis um, that the cure to bad speech is not uh, less speech, but more speech, right? So we are sorely in need of uh, the resources to create better news that's truth regarding. A few years ago, the Boston Globe, uh, my hometown paper, did an article comparing employment rates in different industries and how much they've declined over the last few decades. And so you look at uh, steel mills and coal mining, no surprise, that's declined a lot. Journalism has declined more in the last 25 years. So it really is an endangered profession. Um, there are lots of ways to deal with this. Uh, I look to England as <laughs> having one uh, solution that we uh, should consider adopting, which is the BBC's uh, tax, which probably a lot of people don't like paying 150 pounds a year. Uh, but it does generate a lot of uh, resources for um, the generation of truth-seeking, common good-oriented news. One proposal that, uh, that some colleagues have proposed is a fact tax on platforms. Say they say the tax was 1% of revenue or 1% of advertising revenue, that would be plenty of money to uh, restore a lot of journalism. Okay, um, privacy and security, I think I'll skip that one for now. Um, now, to the, our responsibilities, I've emphasized that social media only gets better if we get better. And uh, that's because well, there is another path, which is to reduce the aperture, which is to try to create a digital public sphere in which, once again, like the 20th century, only a, there's only a few speakers who are minted as responsible, civic, and truth-seeking truth speakers. That's what a bunch of the mass media era was. We think that the costs to democracy for trying to go, go that way are too great. We like a public sphere in which lots and lots of people are speaking but they need to be more responsible. And uh, there are lots of tools to help make people more responsible, to help us become more responsible ourselves. A couple of them are about media liber literacy and civic education. I think the, um, the jury is still out about how effective those efforts are, but we should keep, uh, uh, keep uh, pushing forward in that way. Platform design and operation can help to make us all more civic and more responsible. So any, I don't know if there's any architects, landscape architects in the room, but it, you know, it's, it's just a, a commonly known feature of parks that if you put lights up in the parks, less people get mugged at night. And so there are lots of lights in parks. That's a, kind of a silly, trivial example. But what if we had 100 engineers at Facebook and Google and Twitter who are trying to say, how can I change my platform 
to make the behavior on this platform more civic, more truth regarding, I think that would make a big difference. I think that uh, some of the platforms are beginning to ask that question, but only at the uh, beginning uh, stages of that. And so I think that there, there needs to be a mass awakening in addition to uh, the platform and architectural points. Okay, so um, just as a reminder and to wrap up, the uh, ideal public sphere here has uh, these five rights and opportunities. That is what the structure of media should be like for us to engage democratically. And then a set of norms and dispositions for what we need to be like to create a successful democracy. So it has these two pieces. Now, what I've described is uh, what philosophers call, and I, political philosophers call, an ideal theory. That is, describing the best, knowing that, in all likelihood, we as frail, flawed, highly flawed humans will never get to the ideal, but it's worth sketching up out an ideal so that we can strive toward it. How close can we get? I don't know how close we can get. I hope we can get a lot closer than we are. I do think that unless social media in the public sphere becomes significantly more supportive of democratic governance than it is now, uh, we're in for some tough times. And I hope that uh, this, uh, these remarks, whether uh, how much of it I've gotten right, I'm sure there's a lot that, that's wrong, but I hope that it uh, motivates you and provides a few tools for you to engage in reflection and in a discussion of what kind of digital public sphere would create the conditions, the informational conditions that are necessary for a successful democracy in a very ambitious way, not in a reactive way, because our democracy deserves a high level of ambition. Thank you very much. Um, Lachlan, that was great, uh, really stimulating. I've got uh, three or four questions, and then we'll, we'll open it up to, to the room. Um, so I want to start with uh, a couple of characteristics of social media, which seem to me to contribute to the effects that it has in relation to political polarization. Um, so the first is anonymity. So one of the big contrasts between the old media world uh, and this new media world is in the old media world, generally speaking, you knew who was writing. You knew where they came from. They were, in some sense, um, accountable, and that also helped you to make some kind of judgment about the veracity of what they were saying. A lot of social media is anonymous. We don't know who's saying it. We don't know where they're coming from. And indeed, some people go to some lengths to pretend that they're somebody else when they say things in order yes. to add to the general kind of confusion. Is that, do you think, a serious design flaw? Or do we need to do something about anonymity? It's a great question. As a matter of fact, a lot of things that are being said aren't being said by people. They're being well, said by true. bots. Yeah. And so I think it would be a good first step. Uh, I think anonymity, it, it, reducing anonymity creates greater accountability, but I do think that, um, that a public sphere ought to provide for some spaces where people can say things anonymously that are very, very unpopular uh, or that, are, that they may suffer social consequences from you know, in a democratic regime, but especially in authoritarian ones. So I think it's a mixed bag. I would, I do think that it, 
it's important to have much more information about how, in, about how messages are being created and being propagated on these social media platforms. So um, Tristan, for those of you interested in, in the platform dynamics, Tristan Harris has a great uh, podcast and, and series. And uh, part of, uh, I, I think this is probably true, that uh, if you watch YouTube, right? You watch YouTube, a lot of people watch YouTube. A, an organic view of a YouTube video is something that you yourself click on, right? An inorganic view is one that's algorithmically fed to you by the next video that YouTube thinks you'll like based on what you just watched. 70% of the views on YouTube are inorganic. That is not things that people chose, right? And so uh, we know that. Uh, but there are many, many features of the algorithms and message propagation that are proprietary and not available for public inspection. And I think a good first step is increasing the transparency on that information spread so that uh, civil society organizations and advocates and people uh, trying to make uh, the public sphere better can understand how discussion is happening. Because I think that's the first step before developing, advocating solutions like uh, less anonymity or more anonymity. I think we need to know more about the phenomenon. And it, I believe it's the case that uh, fake news and really toxic content has a far different pattern of propagation than other kinds of content. And so you could imagine if you understood that, and if, if we as a society understood what those differences are, then uh, we could advocate for um, algorithms and changes that would even out that curve. And that wouldn't discriminate against any particular viewpoint. It would just say, hey, look, this kind of message has a spread pattern that looks like 70% of the, the agents that are spreading it aren't even real human beings. And so that doesn't feel dem very democratic to me. Maybe we should uh, tamp that down a little bit. But we need much more understanding and an audit trail in order to be able to do that. Great. Let, let's take another, uh, another characteristic, which is we might kind of refer to as the a critical mass of, of extreme oddness which is that you know, there are some extremely odd people with some extremely odd ideas. Yes. And in the old world, they didn't know there were other people like them. Yes. Uh, yeah? Yeah. And so... I that, myself am one of them. Well, yeah. No, no. Uh, so I, apparently the Flat Earth Society had more or less ceased to exist before the internet came along. And now it's thriving because... You know, the, the few hundred people in every country who believe the Earth is flat and that the, 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 the spherical world is a, is a conspiracy a theory, uh, have a conspiracy theory about it, they can now connect. Yes. And now, and they, now they gather, and apparently the Flat Earth Convention is quite a big thing every yeah. year. So yeah. isn't another characteristic of social media that enables people with bonkers ideas to get together? And it's fine when it's the Flat Earth Society. Um, it's not so fine when it's the anti-vax movement. Yes, yes. Uh, that's... That's a, a profound and deep issue. Uh, I think that certainly social media does enable that. Uh, we've, as a society, as American society and perhaps British society as well, have, uh, I believe, lost a kind of expert credibility that would be important in countering. I mean, the flat earth is, a, is an extreme example. I think there are plenty of experts who can debunk that, that idea. But um, you know, one question that I pose to my friends who are, uh, I teach at the Kennedy School of Government, which is 
all about expertise. That's what we do. And so we're big champions of it. Um, but sometimes I ask people, okay, well, experts, how do you explain to someone how to tell the difference between the expert who tells you that climate change is happening and that it's caused by human activity, the public health expert that tells you to vaccinate your kids because herd immunity is very, very important, the foreign policy expert who told you to a certainty that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and so therefore uh, a war is important, and economic policy experts in the run-up to the financial crisis who said there's no bubble, things are going just fine, and, and kind of made fun of, of some of the skeptics of, of that view. It's a little bit hard to sort out which kinds of expertise are very reliable and which ones are not. And I think it's a long march to institution building. To, I don't think there are easy answers to the problem you point out. I think, as I said, the 20th century was a narrow aperture with too few speakers and important views being dismissed and gatekept out. Right now, the first part of the 21st century, the aperture is too wide. There's uh, flat earthers, lots of other views that, are, that don't have particular regard for the truth or the common good or civility kind of getting in. And we need to develop the institutional muscles to have the right aperture, which is wider than it was in the 20th century, but somewhat narrower than it is now. So, you know, I, I read the, the, the paper that um, is kind of the background to your speech, and, and you know, one of the things that I, I liked about it was there was a little bit of optimism, a little bit of hope there, or at least a kind of sense of what we needed to do. But I guess my, my problem is that one of the other characteristics of the old world was that you had to work at stuff to get noticed. I mean, not always, yes. but, you know, you weren't going to get in a newspaper unless you'd kind of done some serious thinking and done some serious reading and, you know, knew your stuff. Now, we have a kind of completely egalitarian world where, I mean, you know, I, I, some of my most intelligent, thoughtful and brilliant tweets, unbelievably, have been hardly retweeted, whereas some of my worst jokes have been highly successful, you know, so... Why would people bother, is my question. Why would people bother to educate themselves, to learn the truth, to improve the way they write or communicate, when there's no, doesn't seem to be any kind of bonus for that in social media land? It's to do with whether or not you can find something which shocks yeah. people, which moves, which amuses people, that involves a cat. You know, so, uh, so hasn't social media further reduced the incentives for us to be the kind of citizens that kind of civic republicans would like us to be? Mm. Well, yes and no. It depends on what you're trying to achieve. So it's much easier to get noticed, right? Because uh, if you sent a cute cat's picture to the New York Times in 1984, they probably wouldn't have published it, right? As, as they shouldn't have. Or the yeah. Financial Times, much less, right? <laughs> um, uh, so it's easier to get noticed but it may not, it's probably not any easier to get things done. So let me just, uh, so I'm, I'm drawing here on the work of Zainab Tufechi, among other people. So one criticism of hers, of the social media world and, and others, is that it's too easy to have a mass demonstration now, right? So in the civil rights era, you had to talk to hundreds of people, train them, go door to door, organize in church basements. It took a long time to mobilize a significant number of people to demonstrate. Now on social media, it's possible to get viral demonstrations, and as the Arab Spring shows, and viral enough to actually overthrow some governments, right? So you can get noticed in that very significant way, but 
it those examples are ones in which you don't get to build real organizations. You don't get to affect real social change. You don't get to make policy and govern. So that's still really, really hard. So the optimist in me says that we're on a learning curve in which right now people are satisfied with getting noticed, some of them. And so that's, that's the social media world in which you can get lots of hits and retweets. But already organizations are realizing it's not enough to get noticed. It's not enough even to get noticed and have a big demonstration. You still have to build a real organization to affect change. If that's your goal, rather than to get noticed, then you have to be a lot more serious about the levels of engagement, the work, to do the hard work, to engage across difference, to be a little bit more civic republican. So that is, that is fascinating. I mean, I remember when I was uh, running a different think tank many years ago, we, we published a paper about politics written by a guy called Ben Rogers. And in, he, in the paper, he had this interesting concept, which he said, the problem with politics is there's no shallow end. You know, you go to a Labour Party branch meeting and within, you know, 20 minutes, you're the kind of constituency secretary. You know, it's like, <laughs> you're kind of like... <laughs> Whereas now, it's all in the shallow end. And, and I guess my question to you is, is now it's all in the shallow end, what, what a group of scholars in this country called, I thought, rather brilliantly, chaotic pluralism. You know, <laughs> so now we have this kind of chaotic pluralism but there's no incentive to learn to swim now. Yeah. So everyone can just stay in the shallow end, splashing around. Why would you bother to, to, to swim? But I guess I, I get your point, which is that in the end, you can have all these hits and all this attention, but it, it ain't achieving a great deal, and people will, will realise that. I've got to ask you one yes, last question, please. because you know, to have you here, it's a great honour to have you here. Um, and you're one of the world's leading thinkers about democracy. So moving a bit off this subject, one of the hot topics, of course, in the world is the state of democracy. We had a major survey published just last week by Cambridge University saying that people's attitudes to democracy, particularly young people's attitude to democracy, has further declined. We've seen the number of democracies decline. What is your sense overall of the state of the democratic uh, project right now? I know it's a big question. Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be thoughtful about the answer. Um, I think we're in a period of reconstruction. I think that, and, and it won't, there's a lot of focus uh, on debates around Brexit here, uh, uh, around uh, the Trump presidency in the United States. Um, and I, I think that's the wrong time scale for thinking about the reconstruction of democracy. Uh, my own view is that I think most of us in this room grew up in an era in which uh, democracy tomorrow was pretty much going to be like democracy yesterday. And it was a stable era from, in the United States uh, from 1976 to 2016. In Britain, I guess I would date it roughly the same, maybe from the beginning of the Thatcher era to Brexit. And it was, um, like the media world, a fairly narrow gauge politics, especially in the United States, between a kind of center-left and a kind of center-right. And that world, I believe, is uh, gone and unlikely to come back. And so imagine if you had walked in, and I, I think you probably can imagine exactly what this is like, if you had walked in with uh, Elizabeth Warren's proposal for a wealth tax or for 40% of seats on corporate boards to be represented by labor into a Obama-era 2015-14 West Wing room, right? You would have been um, 
Uh, I think people would have been polite, so they wouldn't have laughed to your face, but they probably would have snickered, and then they would have escorted you out of the West Wing and taken your badge, which is not a good thing, because you want that badge. Um, but that's just to say that the world, the aperture of politics and policy ideas, and I, I don't even want to say on the left and right, because I think that that may not be the correct dimensions, but it has dramatically expanded in part because of the failure of the, the eventual creep of the failure of that 1976 to 2016 world to deliver shared prosperity and, um, and responsive governance. And uh, part of it is long-term causes like that. Part of it is short-term causes like, or short-term developments, shorter term like social media. Uh, but in any case, that old regime that was uh, solidly put together with a lot of parts that meshed and worked together to be mutually reinforcing, I think has melted. And it's going to take a while to put it back together into a democracy that is responsive, creates shared prosperity, and has the right aperture. And that requires rebuilding institutions that are, um, that are broken. I mean, the, the Republican Party in the United States is unrecognizable from what it was in the era that I'm talking about. And I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert in, in British politics, but one might say similar things about the Conservative Party and, and the Labor Party. And the Democratic Party itself in the United States seems on the verge, maybe on the verge, of a similar transformation. Um, and you told me just before that apparently the majority of Democrats would rather that there was a global apocalypse caused by a meteor than a Trump second presidency. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah New Hampshire poll of Democrats shows this. Right. <laughs> and uh, and to the flat earther part, there, there's a, a Twitter handle called SMOD, Sweet Meteor of Death, that was very excited about this poll because finally they're getting some attention for their cause. Great. Well, let's take some questions from, from the room. There's a, a hand. Let's just take, let's take this cluster of three together here in the uh, middle. If you could tell us your name, that would be great. Um, I'm Duska Rosenberg. Um, I'd like to ask, take, uh, take it on uh, your, what you said about expert credibility. Where do you see the role of professional associations in that? Because we haven't been talking about them for a very long time, seriously. And in particular, in relation to what you said about norms and uh, dispositions. So you, on the one hand, you have your regulatory legislative apparatus, which will, say, determine whether something is an offence whereas a professional criteria and principles would determine whether something is offensive. Okay. <laughs> that's a good... That's All right, a, hold yeah. on to that. Yeah, yeah. That's a great... A great uh, well, uh, there's a... Yep. Hi, um, I'm Dee. My question is, we have a new layer of governance coming up called the Facebook Oversight Board. And um, what is interesting is that it is at the moment kind of uh, decided, funded everything by Facebook. And my question to you is, if we were to take that kind of a structure but mutualize it in a way kind of like your tax concept where all the social media mm. companies start to fund an external independent potentially elected board, you know, in some way, shape or form, would that add an aperture in a way, maybe a narrower aperture in a top down rather than a bottom up sort of um, layer of governance? Because that seems to be kind of a halfway house between the, you know, independent, private versus the public. 
Great. Yeah, that's and a then, great question. And then there's a th there was a third hand. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, go on. Um, my name's Rosie. Um, I was wondering, I think policymakers largely focus on political advertisements, especially following things like the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, I personally think this is a misplaced focus, and I think mm. the largest disruption to the democratic landscape is actually kind of independently curated content, kind of like memes, tweets, etc. Would you agree with that the, the focus is misplaced by largely focusing on political advertisements, or do you think it's more balanced than what I'm suggesting? Okay. So... Yeah. So professional associations, I, uh, I think I see professional the role of professional associations as as a part of a larger project. Which my my bumper sticker slogan for it is experts you can believe in again, right? And so I I don't know what the next steps. Are. I wish I knew uh, how to create experts we can believe in again. Professional the idea of a profession in um, the you know nineteenth and twentieth century is a set of people that kind of hold society together with their expertise by making their contributions, whether it's in law or medicine or these other fields. And uh, sometimes professional associations do that. Sometimes they just create barriers to entry so other people can't come in and protect what they've got. So how can professional associations load on the first function and convince everyone else that that's exactly what they're doing and that they're making, just like politicians and political leaders or university professors, that we're, what we're interested in is, is contributing to the general welfare rather than many other objectives, like protecting our own turf or crawling up the inequality curve or whatever it is. Um, good. And then the, on the Facebook, the... Um, yes, I mean, should these corporations be the same accountability expected of them than government institutions. After all, they are so powerful. Yeah. So Facebook, I, I haven't followed it. I was in an interesting conversation with a woman who's, uh, who's taking a very, very close look at the Facebook community review effort um, that feels a little kind of quasi-judicial. They're going to be trying to adjudicate um, what's okay and what's not okay on Facebook. I see that as an element of uh, Facebook trying to figure out what it's corporate social responsibility to democracy in the public sphere is, which is very, very good. Um, let me just take 30 seconds and, and tell you my hopeful analogy to the post-war period in the United States. There was, uh, after the war, uh, Henry Luce, who was the publisher of Time Life magazine, convened the Hutchins Commission. And Hutchins was the president of the University of Chicago. And the charge of the commission was how to make mass media good for democracy rather than bad for democracy. And Luce thought that these uh, pointy-headed scholars would, and, and experts would, come, would just say, freedom of expression, that's what we need. But they said far more than that. They said that the job of mass media is to create an informed public so that citizens can exercise their democratic responsibilities. And what that means is that mass media need to provide news that gives citizens an arc of understanding of the day's events. And in order to do that, there need to be professional journalists who are uh, holding power accountable to truth and trying to get it right, get both sides of the story. And in order to do that, there's a bunch of norms. Like you have to pay journalists enough to do that work. And you've got to have the business arm separated from the reporting arm. So if one of your reporters writes a terrible story about your biggest advertiser, it's your normative responsibility to run that story, even if it's bad for business, right? So what is the modern analog of an effort that would do that, 
that would lay out the responsibilities of social media to a democracy. And the Hutchins Commission had a profound effect. I mean, it wasn't the only effort in this regard, but one important one. And those efforts had a profound effect, including becoming the gospel of schools of journalism for a long time and really setting a set of norms for uh, media operators in the United States. Now, it's true what they were afraid of was being nationalized like the BBC, which is why they were willing to embrace a deep form of corporate social responsibility, but they did. And what would be a similar uh, ambitious, visionary move that would bend the arc of the development of social media? And I, I see Facebook's effort as an internal effort to try to do that a little bit, but I think we need a much larger social effort to try to do that. And are we wrong to focus on political advertising rather than you know, memes and uh, third-party content? Are we, are we too obsessed with, with advertising as, 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 as what drives opinion on, online? Well, I think it, there's, there are many elements, right? One is paid for advertising by campaigns and politicians. One is the, just the advertising as clickbait that generates political content from people who have no political interest but are uh, just trying to rack up income from these ads that distorts the political conversation. And then there are memes and, um, and many other dimensions. And I, I, don't, I don't have a prioritization in my mind. If you're in the United States, political advertising is very, very important. Uh, Mr. Bloomberg has spent $300 million so far on political advertising. My understanding is um, that in some markets, uh, that effort has so saturated the internet advertising market that it's just driving political ad rates up for everyone now, <laughs> now which is astonishing. But memes are also very important. And I think one thing, um, if you're interested in memes, I think a a deep question, or I don't know how deep, a good question is whether memes need to be authentic, right? So there is this idea that uh, resources can't buy viral memes because millennials and so the social uh, media savvy seek authenticity and they can tell when it's a large advertising effort and it just feels fake. And I hope that's true because it preserves the space for an egalitarian kind of participation that can't be bought. And I think so far it's true. I think we'll put that to the test in this election cycle about whether memes can be pro professionally produced and spread. We'll try and take two more lots of three questions. So I could immediately seen three hands over here. We'll the first three that the mic goes to. Hiya. Um, to give a quick defense of anonymity. Tell us who you are. Uh, yeah. oh, very funny. Tell us who you are. <laughs> Prefer to remain anonymous. Uh, I'm Lewis. Nice oh. to meet you. Um, to give a quick defense of anonymity, there's a long and storied history of anonymity being a really good agent of social change. Yes. Often for the better, not always, but often. Um, do you think you'd agree that there should be a space in our digital public sphere for anonymity? And then uh, pass it over to this person here who really has had his hand up for a long time, so it's going to be a, a killer point. <laughs> good evening. My name is Francis Serio. Um, the ideal that you described is a, a beautiful one, a very honourable one, but surely one that will take time to, to get to. Given the chaos and the anarchy that it's out there with social media, the fact that our democracies are clearly in danger, uh, being manipulated by unscrupulous people uh, with fake news, people like Cambridge Analytica, what can we do uh, practically and urgently, because... 
philosophizing and discussing it is, is a good thing, but practically we need some action. So what can we do now urgently to save our democracies? Thank you. And then, uh, yeah. Uh, Praz, uh, what is my name? Um, I'd be interested to know what lessons do you think we can learn from Wikipedia? Uh, because, you know, I know it's not social media, but it's a social platform, yeah. entirely self-policed, a community of tens of thousands of people that seem to fit all your norms. And as anyone who's ever used Wikipedia in the beginning will know, it's got better and better over time. Uh, and so I don't know if there are lessons for the other platforms from Wikipedia. Yeah, great. One day, we, great. One, once we used to think Wikipedia was the whole future, didn't we? But <laughs> now it feels like an oasis. No, it's a, a yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. Um, so uh, on the anonymity, I, I, right now, provisionally, I do think that there should be anonymous spaces in the digital public sphere to articulate views that are unpopular uh, and would be would be uh, sanctioned by either official force or or the force of public opinion. Uh, I guess I. It's provisional because I, I don't know what the consequences of the wrong kind of, of uh, messages broadcast behind a cloak of anonymity would be. And if they were bad enough, I would change my mind. What I would want to do is to try to do kind of content neutral things to detect what those bad effects were before saying no anonymity. Um, you know, I appreciate the urgency problem. And so what I sketched out here is obviously a long-term arc that is ambitious and what we should be striving toward for in the medium to long, longer term. I'm impressed by how little effort, or how, there, there are great, great technologists and communication scholars and practitioners out there, many of them, some of them kind of uh, defected from Silicon Valley, trying to really understand what the shape of fakeness news is, trying to understand what's going on on 4chan and how propaganda spreads, whether it's domestic or bots or foreign interference. And I guess I would think that the, for me, the first move would be to really capacitate those people, those watchdogs, much, much more strongly than they are now. I mean, they really feel like half a dozen people in a basement, you know, confronting this problem that's threatening us all. And so what uh, so I would um, increase the watchdog function, I guess, and, and uh, beginning with the people who are trying to do it now from civil society, but dramatically under-resourced, and have all of us pay a lot more attention to what they're finding and what they're figuring out. Um, and then finally, Wikipedia is a great model. Um, it is uh, very, very different from the social media platforms because it's obviously not advertising driven in uh, anything like the same way. Doesn't, um, doesn't rely upon uh, gathering a bunch of data and uh, targeting ads uh, based on that data to increase advertising revenue. It's community governed. They've struggled for a long, long time on articulating what their norms are and how to create a community that follows those norms. And so I think it, it does offer a kind of uh, a noble oasis, as you say, um, but I don't see how that could scale in quite the same way. As social media, Wikipedia is its own community that offers an incredibly important public good to us all. But social media is critical infrastructure for democracy, which is a different thing. And so it's kind of like a, a utility that isn't quite working right now and is generating some pretty bad effects. And so we have to figure out how to make that utility work better 
well before it's a, a self-governed. Um, it probably won't ever be completely, you know, self-governed in the way that Wikipedia is. It's a, a different path forward. But I agree that it's Wikipedia is a, a model that's very, um, very inspirational, very admirable. We've got time for one final set of questions from this side of the room. So there's a gentleman over there, right by the wall. And then there's somebody in the back row. Hi. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, uh, you touched on it just then, actually. So I guess, what is there any hope for the digital public sphere to be neutral as long as it is ad-based? And I don't mean that in terms of the adverts themselves. I mean, as long as the imperative to keep people on the system as long as possible and therefore show them the most emotive content, mm. can digital the, the digital uh, public sphere ever be completely neutral? Okay, I mean, I, yeah. I, I take that question kind of say, you know, in a sense, is it compatible with commercial imperatives? You yes. know, that's part, that's part yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and then, yeah. Uh, Nico McDonald. Um, about 15 years ago in the online journalism review, I advocated that people should post with their names in social media, partly because you don't dump on your own doorstep, uh, which is a British phrase meaning, you know, you don't be rude where people can see who it is. But it's interesting that particularly after Brexit, I found that not only did people whose names were published attack me online, but they were people I knew uh, personally, <laughs> which was pretty incredible. So yeah. civility is not something which comes from just not being anonymous. But yeah. I'm interested, you started off with a comment that uh, digital technologies have transformed, which gives agency to digital technologies. But in your analysis, I thought you did a really good job of talking about the way in which society has become, what I would argue, is more technocratic and ruled by experts or people mediating experts. And my sense is that the, the frustration, the anger we have in society that leads to some of this uh, frustration online is a function of people being excluded in that technocratic way from power. And the anger that we've seen is partly that's kind of been overthrown with Brexit and the people who had that power got very angry about it because they, they weren't used to losing power. And they attacked some people, some people attacked back. But either way, that locates the problem in the political sphere, not in the technology or the social yeah, media see, sphere. Yes, yes. So, but all your solutions seem to be in that latter sphere. Surely the solution is we fix politics, and perhaps by reintroducing ideology and paradigms. Because ironically, when we had more ideology, we had more civility. We may have had more violence but actually people were better behaved. So maybe we just need to get back to ideology and some really big ideas, and the, the social media sector will fix itself. What do you think? Well, You, you have two minutes to answer. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, I don't think it'll fix itself. I agree that a huge uh, part of the problem is political. Uh, um, part of the, I don't know, problem, the situation is political. Part of the wide aperture politics that we're seeing is because of social media, right? One of the one of the cogs that made the 1975 to 2016 world kind of hang together was fairly effective, or I don't know, increasingly ineffective after a while, media gatekeeping. And then uh, Mr. Trump, his huge, one of his huge political innovations was figuring out how to connect directly with his constituencies that bypassed the um, basically mainstream media, right? And so that, so they worked together, I think. And, and so, um, they fixing politics. I, I guess I think both both things need to be fixed at the same time. Holding social media constant and having responsible political parties competing on different ideologies that exercise some discipline. I think will uh, will not be sufficient to to fix the discursive problem that we have right now. 
So I think we need to work on both ends of the spectrum, of which social media and news is only one piece. There are lots of political and institutional pieces as well, to be sure. Um, and, and, then, the, and then in the end, yeah. the fact is Facebook, Twitter, yes, the, Apple, the they are model. commercial. Yeah, yeah, in, the, yeah, yeah. In, the, in the end, they're driven yeah. by commercial imperatives. Yes, and ultimately, yes. can yes. we ever have a democratic public sphere which is fundamentally driven by commercial imperatives? Yes. So this is a debate that's uh, raging right now. There are uh, prominent scholars who take the position that I think you articulated that the business model itself creates a huge, huge problem for any of the reforms that I suggested, or any, or many that I didn't that would bend the arc of, of media toward democracy. Um, it's a good question. I think it's very, very possible. I don't know this, but I, I suspect that social media platforms bec could become a lot better and a lot more democratic, and they would, still, they would lose a little bit of money of ad revenue, but they would still be plenty good businesses. So I think that my own view is that there's a lot of, uh, they're making a lot of money, right? And so doing their bit for democracy, I think, would be a little bit costly, just as it's costly for Time Magazine or the New York Times to run uh, uh, news stories that criticize their advertisers. But for a long time, they were still very good businesses. So similarly, you know, I think there's a lot of things that uh, social media platform companies could do that would make the operations of those platforms much better for democracy and not fundamentally change their business model. But I may be incorrect. Well, look, thank you all for coming and for asking such fantastic, they've been fantastic questions. Yeah, brilliant very questions. good questions. Um, uh, if you want to know more about the RSA's work, particularly around deliberative democracy, which is a really big thing for us and where we're part of kind of global networks, then that's on our website. If you want to know more about the RSA, then go to the website, sign up for our newsletters and for information about future events. If you want to carry on this conversation, then go down to Raw Smells, our beautiful space downstairs, have a <laughs> glass of wine, talk to fellows. Uh, and of course, if you don't know about RSA Fellowship, then you can find out about that online as well. But um, most of all, can you please join me in thanking our fantastic speaker tonight, Archon Fung. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.